Ne saurait-on trouver un messager en France qui s'en voudrait aller au jardin de plaisance Dira Robert, Robert, le beau Robert, que la brunette se mourrait. Je suis Robert, Robert, le beau Robert. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And uh, we are currently looking at the works of Francis Parkman Jr., the great American historian from the 19th century who made it his life's work to trace the rise and fall of the French Empire in North America, beginning with uh, various first explorations and and settlements to the defeat uh, in 1763 of, of the French Empire in North America. And then we've already looked at his w earlier works, The Oregon Trail and the Pontiac, The Conspiracy of Pontiac, which kind of forms almost a coda to this series, dealing with uh, how the British were faced with the the reality of, of what it meant to inherit this empire in this French empire, going at it with a very different set of policies and approaches and, and a different philosophy. So we're done with that. Uh, we did those first because they were written first. But now we're going to jump into his seven volume work, France and America, sorry, France and England in North America, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's really France in North America with the British being the the, you know, the backdrop, the antagonist to the French Empire. Um, and it's in seven volumes. So let me just briefly go over what those seven volumes are, if you're not familiar with them. Um, the first uh, is called Pioneers of France in the New World. Uh, this one looks at the Huguenots in Florida as almost kind of a, a introduction to a, a possible alternative French Empire that could have been established, maybe closer to the, the Puritans, he thinks, uh, that may have been more successful. Um, and the rest of the book looks at the, the, the lives of, of Champlain and the founding of Quebec and those early years of the French in Canada. The second volume is called The Jesuits in North America in the 17th Century, and this one looks at the various Jesuit missions among the, in Canada, and it's a, it's a wonderful book. I think it's my favorite of the whole bunch, maybe because I read the translation of the Jesuit relations years ago, um, which is the records that the Jesuits kept of these missions. And I had a lot of, a lot of respect, a lot of love for the, those documents. Then we have La Salle and the discovery of the Great West, which is more about the exploration of, of the Great Lakes and the Mississippi. Then we have the old regime in Canada, that's volume four, and that's sort of a, almost a social political history of, of Quebec, the institutions, the, the politics, the, the, the founding of that, that, that civilization in Canada, especially around Quebec um, in, the, in the 17th and 18th century. Then we have Count Frontenac in New France under Louis XIV, that's volume five, and that, uh, Actually, I kind of forgot what's all in that one. Obviously, in this book, we're getting to the, the beginning of the epic conflict between, between England and France. Frontenac was a, a military leader and really about the beginning of this imperial conflict between, between France and England under the leadership of Louis XIV back in Paris or Versailles. 
then we have uh, a fairly long book. The last two volumes of this are, are big. Uh, the first of these is called A Half Century of Conflict, which explores just basically the wars between Britain and France and how they were fought out on this global scale, particularly in the New World. And then the final volume, the longest of the whole bunch, um, about 600, most of these are like 300 pages, but this one uh, is like six or 700 pages. It's called Montcalm and Wolf. And this is about the Seven Years' War in, in North, North America and the, the final defeat of the French in, in that conflict, the final defeat of the French in North America anyways. So that is the work, and I, I highly recommend you read this as a work of history, as a work of literature, as uh, just a, a work of art, really, and as you know, something that America produced in the, in the realm of history that's, that's on par with, with someone like Gibbon, that's, that's on par with the great historians of, of Europe. Um, you know, American historians, of course, have many great works. I, I've, I've come out of that tradition and I've read many of them, but, you know, nothing has that, or very few works. I mean, Barbara Tuckman has a few that, that kind of fit into that. Of course, uh, uh, Henry Adams' history of, of Jefferson and Madison, presidencies, another massive work. But this really stands on its own as a massive achievement. And done by someone who really didn't have to write this um, professionally. Uh, and he did it under great physical uh, strain. He, was, he had declining health. He, he lived a fairly long life, but he had health problems since, since he was young. He could not even see. He had to have documents read to him. He had, at the end of his life, he had to have people write for him. When he did write, he did it with great strain. So the fact that he was able to do historical work in original sources, you know, before public stuff was, a lot of the stuff was published. Now, I think you can get a lot of these sources now published, but um, um, not all. In fact, I found a document in, when I'm looking at the Conspiracy of Pontiac that he used that's still not published. You just have to go to the archives to, to find it. Um, but he did it, you know, it's, it's an achievement just physically that he's able to, to, to write this. And, you know, very few historians, you know, can achieve something as grand as this. So I have a lot of love for France and England in North America. I originally read it when I first, I guess I read it when I first was in Florida. So I had already been teaching for a while, but um, it, you know, I, 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 it's not something I can replicate, but it's something I, you know, I, I really envy this ability to write interesting narrative history in a literary way that deals with big themes. And yeah, those themes are problematic now, the way he treats Indians, the way he kind of has a, a crude dualism in dividing France and, and Great Britain. Although he nuances it often in this work, it's still, you know, it, it's still a bit sim simplistic, his overall thesis. Um, but the details he fills in, the story he tells, that is really where a lot of the wonder and greatness in this book is. So um, it's a nice one. I, I encourage you to, to check it out, or at least bear with me as I work my way through this. It's going to take about 25, 26 episodes to get through this. So um, about as many episodes as it took Parkman years to write this, this work. Altogether on 3,000 some pages, although a lot of it is appendixes and things. All right, so with that introduction out of the way and that, that initial praise, let's begin to talk about the pioneers of New France, the very first of these. 
Originally, it was published in 1865. It was revised in 1885. A couple of these works were revised. Uh, the third volume, The Soul in the Great West, was a revision, uh, the version we have. Um, so he, he did come back and revise some of these to, to smooth out the edges as he started to put together this book. Okay, so this, the first part of, the first half of Pioneers of No Fans is basically in two parts. The first part is kind of, it's, it's almost like it doesn't belong in the rest of the book. In fact, it's set in the mid 16th century. And in part two, he goes back to basically the 15th century almost dealing with the early explorations. And so the question we need, you know, it's kind of not clear why this is here, except to be complete, because it's a part of the French in North America that he felt the need to include. Now, he doesn't talk about the Caribbean at all, which, you know, you know, geographically, Caribbean, Central America, Mexico is part of North America, but kind of when you look at cultural geography, you often put it in a separate region. So this doesn't deal with that, except it's maybe in the background a little bit. He's dealing mostly with the, the land that would be the United States and Canada. Um, but there, you know, there was a French presence there, but it was only for a little while and it was snuffed out. And, and why is it relevant to him? Well, the reason it's relevant for him is because they were Huguenots. And yeah, Huguenots would be in Quebec. Huguenots would be in French Canada, but they'd be suppressed and they would not be allowed to, to worship freely. They were a marginal to the identity of French Canada, according to Parkman anyways. On the other hand, in Florida, it was a Huguenot exper experiment. Now Huguenots, if you don't know, are the French Protestants, French Calvinists. Uh, and during the years of the War of the Religion in France, which was much of the second half of the 16th century in France was dominated by the wars of religion. I think two French kings were assassinated. Of course, one died in a tournament. So it was not a, you had to be pretty lucky to survive uh, being a king in those years. But, you know, a period of, of a lot of unrest, a lot of overthrown monarchs. And it finally ends in, I think it's 1596 or some date like that, 1590s, I'm pretty sure. Uh, with a kind of a compromise under King Henry the Fourth, I believe. I think I'm doing that off of, off of memory, um, and and of course there's going to be this continual history of of the French Huguenots, the French Protestants, um, but they're not going to seem to play a very big role in 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 the Americas the way in England they did. Well, not Huguenots so much, but of course. English Protestants and the Puritans. Now, here's where I think Parkman is dated and doesn't quite live up a century and a half later, is his reduction of kind of the English experiment to New England. And he is, he's of Harvard, he's, he's kind of out of New England stock. So although he's very much interested in the frontier and that stuff, he's still rooted in, in kind of this idea that American history flows from Boston or pulls from Plymouth even. And so he, he's looking for the French equivalent of the Puritans, or the French equivalent even more so of the Pilgrims. And, you know, I'm of the opinion that American civilization, you know, Anglo-American civilization, is much more defined by slavery and empire, and therefore we need to look to Virginia to find a better model of what America would be, an empire based on slavery, seizure of land exploitation, um, and the Puritans even have their share of that, for that matter. But Parkman wants to see the history of America, this titanic struggle between Britain and France, 
in terms of a, a struggle between absolutism and liberty, right? And that is very reductive, I think. And it doesn't appreciate the nuance of the French Empire or a lot of the realities of, of the Anglo-American Empire, right? He, at one point, he even uses the term inherited rights. When talking about the Puritans, this is in the third part of, or the, the final chapters of part one, of volume one, Pioneers of New France. You know, he kind of talks about inherited rights. He's using almost the Burkett, Burkean language to talk about liberty. Um, so, on the other hand, it's true that there are clear institutional, you know, differences between the way the English settled their colonies in North America and the way the French did. They had different goals. They had different political structures backing them up. Very different types of people move there. Um, but let's talk about that. He has a little bit of an introduction to this volume where he sort of introduces the whole book. Um, quote, feudalism still strong in life, though enveloped and overborne by newborn centralization. Monarchy and the flush of triumphant power. Rome nerved by disaster springing with renewed vitality from ashes and corruption and ranging the earth to reconquer abroad what she lost at home. These banded powers pushing into the wilderness, their indomitable soldiers and devoted priests unveiled the secrets of the barbarous continent. Pierced the forests, traced and mapped out the streams, planted their emblems, built their forts, all and claimed all as their own. New France was all head under king, noble, and Jesuit. The lank, lean body would not thrive. Even commerce wore the sword, decked itself with the badge of nobility, aspired to forests, seigneuries, and hordes of savage retainers. Along the borders of the sea, an adverse power was strengthening and widening, with slow but steadfast growth, full of blood and muscle, a body without a head. Each has its strength and its weakness. Each had its moan of vigorous life. But the one was fruitful, the other barren. One instinct with hope and other darkening with shadows of despair. By name, local position and character, one of these communities of freemen stands forth as the most conspicuous representative of this antagonism. Liberty and absolutism, New England and New France. The one was an offspring of a triumphant government, the other of an oppressed and fugitive people. The one an unflinching champion of the Roman Catholic reaction, the other a vagabond of reform. Oh, sorry, the vanguard of reform. So that's the distinction, and that's his thesis. And he never really shakes from that in his entire in these entire seven volumes. He sticks to that. So the failure of New France was rooted in its very institutional structure, um, which is it's an adjunct of the monarchy. It's an adjunct of Rome. It's an adjunct of the Catholic Church. It is by nature a conservative. Uh, centralizing, uh, religiously reactionary uh, mission. New England, the Anglo-American colonies, whatever they are, they're not that, right? So, um, and he doesn't really interrogate the English colonies that much. He, he seems to come at them largely with these assumptions in his head and fairly unshaken throughout seven volumes. Um, he doesn't really care about the history of, of the Americas. Maybe other people had written it, but his interest was France. His interest was the French. So does he make his case on the French side of it? I, I think he, he makes a fairly compelling presentation here. And I think it's something that still has to be grappled with by historians today. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to the approach. Um, although I, I think he doesn't fully appreciate the realities of English colonialism rooted also in like not really based on liberty and the rhetoric of liberty, certainly, 
the rhetoric of the rights of English people. But the reality on the ground is quite different. Okay, so part one, what I'm going to talk about in this episode and a little bit of the next episode is, is called the Huguenot in Florida, Huguenots in Florida. And this is a tragic experiment. When was it? 1562 to... Uh, when does it when does it fail? Um, sixty by sixty seven, by sixty five, I think. Yeah, by I mean it it doesn't last long; it's just a few years. But there was a moment in Florida, in Florida history, where the Huguenots established a colony based on religious liberty, at least for them, <laughs> um, and possibly based on a different foundation from what Quebec would be laid on. And then the second volume, the second half, sorry, the second half of the first volume looks at Champlain and Quebec and the founding of Quebec and the foundation on which that is laid. So anyways, that's part one. And I, I like this story. If you don't know this story of of the French Huguenots in, in Florida, it's worth checking out and, and at least looking up and knowing a little bit about. There's some heavy, hefty drama. Uh, certainly Parkman is very, very good at the drama. He's very good at you know, telling the story of of this con of conflict, of violence, of of struggles, of battles. I mean, it's this is part of what he's good at telling these stories in, in quite literary terms. Um, so some of this heroic history, the history of exploration, early settlement, he really likes that stuff. I think where he maybe seems to get a little bit bored is later on in the volumes when he starts telling the history of like. You know the, the 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 actual founding of societies in in Quebec or things like that. He's he's interested in the personalities. He's interested in uh, their adventures. At one point in 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 this volume, actually, he he minds a little bit that you know Champlain was so much more interesting when he's out in the frontier fighting Indians and exploring. When he's in Quebec, it's kind of a boring story. He doesn't really uh, have as much to say about it. Well, anyways, uh, chapter one of this is called Early Spanish Adventure. And not much to say about this, except he's just sort of, you know, when you're talking about Florida, you have to, obviously, it was the Spanish who got there first. Um, they didn't settle first, but of course, the Spanish become the main antagonist of the French in this chapter. Later on, it'll be the English. That'll be the main antagonists, right? Two competing empires. Now, France and, and Spain were essentially allied in the Catholic reaction during the Wars of Religion. Um, but uh, these were Huguenots, so they were kind of painted as enemies of Spain. And he sort of says that their goal, their these early Spanish adventurers in this region, people like um, Ponce de Leon and de Soto, are basically, you know, in a fantasy world. You know, they're searching for like the, the Fountain of Youth, things like that. Uh, Pot uh, not Potosi, what is Sibola, that kind of stuff. And so they're not really in a situation to do anything with it. And, and Parkman seems to believe motive, goals, you know, matter a lot. And he dwells a lot about that, even with the Huguenots. Um, in fact, kind of I got a bit of a criticism here of this whole section on the Huguenots. And that is... He seems to want to say, like, the, had the Huguenots been successful, they would have been a French kind of Puritans, right? But the Puritans came over as families. They set up agricultural settlements, family farms. 
they set up for, they, they plan for a colony that could survive. But these Huguenots seem to be more like the early Virginia settlers who, who thought they'd find like gold or they'd raid Indian villages and, and find slaves and put them to work and like the conquistadors and become wealth, wealthy overnight. And, it took, and they were like all aristocrats and kind of a you know, more bougie background. And they would have, wouldn't have to work. Now, the Puritans knew they'd have to work. Um, the Huguenots, though, they seem more like the Virginians in that they, they tend to be a little bit not really ready, at least not emotionally or, or you know, physically prepared for actually making a living in, in Florida. So, you know, they have their own kind of fantasy. But nevertheless, Parkman does think that this was a chance for maybe a very, very different seed of French empire in the, in the New World. Um, so after setting aside the, 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 the Spanish lack of initiative in Florida, he jumps over to some of the, he, he kind of suggests French-Spanish decline and how, of course, obviously France and England get their place in the, new, in the Americas with Spanish decadence and de decline. He kind of feeds off this saying, Mistress of the Indies, Spain swarmed with beggars. Yet, verging to decay, she had an ominous and appalling strength. Her condition was that of an athletic man penetrated with disease, which had not yet unstrung the thaws and sinews formed in his days of vigor. Philip II could command the services of warriors and statements developed in the years that were past. The gathered energies of ruined feudalism were wielded by a single hand. The mysterious kin, king in his den in the Escorial, dreamy and silent and bent like a scribe over his papers, was the type and the champion of our arbitrary power. More than the Pope himself, he was the head of Catholicity, Catholicity indoctrinated and indeed an inexorable bigotry of Madrid was ever in advance of Rome. So this is the sin of New France eventually, in Parkman's view. It's there in Spain, too. Um, anyways, so you got, but compared at the time, there's a comparative French vitality, especially in these Huguenot people. And so we get the story of the very first Huguenot settlers. Um, who end up calling this part Antarctic France, which is, I, mean, I don't know where that name came, comes from. I don't think Parkman ever really explains either. Antarctic France, France. I guess um, south, south of the Arctic France, right? So it had been southern, more southern, I, I suppose. Um, but those were the first settlements. Uh, the founder here is Villaganon, Villaganon, Villaganon. Is his name, and of course, back in France, we have Gaspard de Cologne, who's helping fund and organizing the resources for some of these these expeditions. Now, who's supporting this um, project? There's some tacit support in the among the Catholic French leadership, because maybe it would mean we could get rid of the Huguenots, we could expel them, send them to the Americas, and they wouldn't be bothering us anymore. And of course, you had Huguenot communities. Who the Protestants tended to be a little bit more middle class, a little bit more, more urban, um, a little bit more uh, in in those sectors of the economy that later on become like the bourgeoisie. You know, I don't you can't really use these terms for the 15, 16th century, but uh, there it is. So they, you know, these voyages start to get some support, um, but you know, there's also. A lot of piracy here. These guys tended to be 
involved in quite a bit of piracy from the look of it. And, uh, you know, if you want to kind of read this, it's hard to do. You got to squint because you're really reading against the author there to do that. But if you want to be a little bit on the side of the Spanish here, a lot of these French Huguenots in, 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 in Florida seem to engage in quite a lot of piracy as a way of making their living. He writes at one point, no sooner on the high seas than the piratical character of the Norman sailors, in no way exceptional at the day, began to declare itself. They hailed every vessel weaker than themselves, pretended to be insured on provisions, and demanded leave to buy them. Then boarding the stranger, plundered her from stem to stern. In the passage of four months on the 9th of March, 1557, they entered the port of Gambrara and saw the fleur-de-lis floating on the walls of Fort Coligny. Um, so... And they get praised. They're, they're praised as they return. Fort Colony, by the way, is the name of the first French Huguenot fort here, named after, in honor of, of uh, the guy in the court. What was his? He's the admiral. Yeah, the admiral of France. Um, so with the story of uh, Vivignon, we get the, the founding of, of, of New France in, 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 in Florida. Um, and then chapter three, which is set in 1562 and 1563, uh, we're reminded of the, the growing religious conflict in France and how this encouraged another Huguenot colony standing for the New World, this time under, under um, Jean Rabot. So there's some conflict with this colony, it seems. Colony wanted more of a military outpost to be established, or at least something that would have military utility. But many of the people who wanted to go there were, of course, Huguenots who had who were driven more by this religious element. Uh, um, here's how he puts it: um, at its foundation lay the religious element represented by Geneva, Calvinism, uh, the martyrs, and the devoted fugitives who sang the psalms of Marot among rocks and caverns. Joined in these were numbers on whose faith sat lightly, whose hope was in commotion and change. End quote. Oh, but speaking of these psalms, um, French Huguenots based their hymns on psalms as, as i understand it and of course part of the protestant goal is to one part of the protestant mission is to translate the bible read the bible in in local languages so everyone can read it and part of way of communicating the messages of the bible to people was through psalms and that's what luther did later calvinists would do the same thing so when i was trying to find a bumper for this series for this this first book, Pioneers of New France, I was looking for some recordings of some of these Huguenot hymns. I didn't have any luck finding any, but I did find a French folk song from the 16th century. So that, that was going to have to do. Anyways, um, so chapter three, we get the story of Jean Rabot um, and this kind of second Huguenot colony in, in New France. Um, and we're t this is what I was pointing to before, though, that I don't get the evidence here that these are substantially different than your, than the Virginian or first people came to Virginia or some of the conquistadors in that they didn't really see, they weren't prepared for the long haul to be like farmers, <laughs> to actually have a colony that'd be self-sufficient or have some commodity they could produce in plantations that could be sent back to the home country. Quote, the pressing question was how were they to subsist? Their thought was not of subsistence, but of gold. Of the 30, the greater number were soldiers and sailors, with a few gentlemen, that is to say men of the sword, born within the pale of nobility, who at home could neither labor nor trade themselves without deg degradation of their rank. For a time they busied themselves with finishing their fort, and this done set in forth in quest of adventures. Um, now, does this in, the Indians, though, are not really afraid of them, often harassing them, and, you know, just 
making peace with the local Indians is part of what this Huguenot settlement has to engage in in its early years. Um, the next character we are meet, uh, Parkman really likes chapters based on interesting characters. And the next one we meet is uh, Laudernaire, Laudernay, uh, 1564, uh, which uh, again is he's in charge of another expedition, three vessels uh, with him in command uh, heading towards to Florida, another Huguenot settlement. And this one founds the fort of Fort Caroline, the major uh, settlement that's going to be there, the, the Fort Caroline. Um, but even this group, uh, Parkman tells us, quote, there were no tillers of soil. Such indeed were rare among the Huguenots for their dull peasants who guided the plow clung with blind tenacity to the ancient faith. Adventurous gentlemen, reckless soldiers, discontented tradesmen, all keen for novelty and heated with dreams of wealth. These were they who would build for their country and their religion and empire beyond the sea. Um, so this chapter also gets into some of the conflicts with the local Indians after uh, the founding of Fort Caroline. You know, pretty violent stuff, actually. The chapter after actually ends with the burning of an Indian village by the, by the French. Uh, chapter five is called Conspiracy. And actually, this goes together with chapter six, which is called Famine, War, and Sucker, which deals more with the internal political conflicts within Fort Caroline. Uh, basically, what happened is frustration over lack of gold, lack of wealth, the realization that they might actually have to work, uh, along with the other problems that came with that, like just starvation, bad conditions, disease, whatever, led to a revolt of nobility against Laudanaire, Laudanaire uh, the, the head of, of Fort Caroline. And, you know, class issues are actually mentioned quite a lot here in Parkman's account. In, for instance, in chapter six, he writes, The contrast was deplorable, for within the precinct of Fort Caroline, a homesick, squalid band, dejected and worn, dragged their shrunken limbs around the sun-scorched area, or lay stretched in lithless wretchedness underneath the shade of the barracks. Some were digging roots in the forest or gathering a kind of sorrel upon the meadows. If they had any skill in hunting and fishing, the river and the woods would have supplied their needs. But in this point, and as others, they were they were lamentably unfit for the work they had taken in hand. Our misery, says Laudernaire, was so great that one was found that gathered up all the fish bones one could find, which he dried and beat into powder to make bread thereof. The efforts of this hideous famine appeared incontinently for us, for our bones effuses beget to cleave so near upon the skin that for the most part the soldiers had their skin pierced through with them in so many parts of their body. Um, now, what does that have to do with class? Well, it seems that these are aristocrats who, who can't bring themselves to work even when threatened with their own survival. And, and instead, what you get is essentially an uprising, which, he has to, which the leadership has to put down eventually, um, hanging a bunch of them. And so uh, we have these pretty pathetic origins of this uh, Huguenot settlement. Um, but they seem to be making it. They, they got, you know, new shipments from France. They seem to have some hope to, you know, three different expeditions coming. They have a fort. If they can survive ways, maybe they'll make it. Just like Virginia eventually made it, right? But then comes Menendez. And so chapter seven, the chapter I'm going to end on, end on now, uh, talks about Pedro Menendez de Aviles. 
And it actually, this chapter is his whole biography. It goes into his childhood, his career, and eventually he gets a petition from a commission from the Spanish king to essentially take Florida and wipe out the Huguenots in Florida. And this happens in 1565. The goal seemed to be both Spanish Empire in Spain or in Florida, something they hadn't yet achieved, and also, you know, the counter-revolution or the counter-reformation, the Catholic Reformation, the, the, the turning back of the gains of, of the Protestants. Now, France and Spain seem to be allied at this time, but nevertheless, you know, because they're Huguenots, they're seen as heretics and legitimate targets of war. And of course, you also have the, the Treaty of Tordesillas, which said that this was Spanish territory in name, if not in fact. And so uh, what happens? Well, Menendez has his expedition, his, his troops, and they end up forming their own fort, uh, St. Augustine, which you can still visit in, in, um, in Florida, I think. Uh, or at least a rebuilding of it is there, because uh, later on it became a site of, 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 of port, of, of, of other forts. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, Parkman can't get out of his mind that Spain is somehow this real backwater, right? And it's, it's a backwater because of its ideology, because of its political system, because of its institutions, and because of its commitment to Rome. And that's his prejudice. And if you want to read this book, you got to understand that and, and look, look through that or at least accept it as part of the story he is trying to, to tell. Um, so we get all the details of this founding of St. Aug Augustine, and eventually the French move on St. Augustine to try to get rid of the Spanish. And during this, Menendez says, okay, we're going to attack Fort Caroline while, this, while they're out in the field. And that's kind of where Chapter 7 more or less ends. Of course, I'm skipping over a lot of detail uh, because it is such a detailed and rich work. It's, uh, you know, Parkman really, really collected his his information and and spent a lot of time crafting that information into stories about but um i'm just here trying to give you the big picture of this and my overall thoughts about this this work um yeah this was actually the first thing by parkman i ever read uh quite a number of years ago when i first got these two volumes later on i, I got the oregon trail pontiac conspiracy of pontiac volume and so the first thing I read was about these Huguenots. And it was a story I didn't really know before. And maybe you don't know about it. So I think it's worth checking out just as an introduction to that, that ex those experiences and that, that event. Now, what's about, you know, I got, there's a little bit more to say about the Huguenot experiment. But in the next episode, I'm going to be focusing on part two of Parkman's first volume, which is about Champlain. And Champlain is, of course, the man responsible or his expedition anyway, is the one responsible for the establishment of Quebec and uh, French Canada. So that will be next. So for now, if you have read this um, and you have any thoughts for me, uh, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Share this to people who might be interested and or leave a review on iTunes if you would. I'd appreciate it. And um, But that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time as I continue on. Uh, in the pioneers of, of new friends. Thanks for, for listening.
Et quand Robert y fut au milieu de la chambre, il avait oublié toutes ses contenances. Il le fit trois tours, trois tours autour du lit pour la brûler.